Welcome to Digging the Dharma, where we dig into the Buddhist Dharma and explore ways of bringing these 2,500-year-old teachings into our lives. I'm Doug Smith of Doug's Dharma on YouTube and the Online Dharma Institute. And I'm John Aaron, teacher at New York Insight Meditation Center and Space to Meditate and an MBSR teacher and trainer. Greetings, Doug. Good to see you. Good to see you, John, as always. <laughs> it's the usual joke. <laughs> Just saw you five minutes ago. In fact, one minute well. ago. But uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah, and today's topic is one of my favorites. And you said you just completed a, uh, a, a video on it. And I'm curious to, to, I haven't watched the video yet because it hasn't come out, but I'm curious to know sort of what you brought up, which is how did you just practicing in nature or nature practice or? Well, I would say, yeah, I mean, um, appreciating nature. Appreciating from a, nature. Sort of a, yeah, from a yeah. sort of a Buddhist perspective. Um, we record these in advance of when they come out, so, right. which will surprise nobody, but um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, the video will be out by the time this is out, so you can always go see it's it. It's uh, one of my favorites. I mean, I, I was doing a retreat earlier this year, which was totally outside. The uh, class that I'm in the midst of, it's a year-long class, which is around climate change, but all of those classes are outside. Um, so, so to me, one of the, one of the reasons to practice in nature, I mean, from a Buddhist perspective, of course, the very first meditation instruction is basically go find a tree and sit by it, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, sit under a beautiful tree. Right. And, um, and of course the Buddha's own enlightenment uh, was under a Bodhi tree and, you know, and the Sangha survived outside you know, and they built, they lived in the forest, basically, always near a community, but they lived in a forest. But there are many practices that can be really supportive of nature, of practicing outside. And, and I think that, and the reason we're doing so much of this embracing climate change class outside, of course, is we've managed over the centuries to kind of separate ourselves from nature. And as a result, <laughs> Climate change is actually a result of that, I would say. You know, that we've we've kind of treated mankind as greater than and and therefore able to take uh take from nature rather than giving it back, as if it were separate from us. And the more we practice, the more we realize, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> There's no separation here at all. Um, and so practicing in nature bringing nature to mind as we practice is really important on so many levels. Well, and it's the, I think it's so, I would say refreshing, calming, uh, rejuvenating to spend time in nature, uh, whether that's in a park or in the forest or by a lake or the ocean or wherever. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's sort of, I mean, uh, People talk about how you just sort of de-stress when you're in when you're among green leaves, and that's certainly I find that the ca the case for myself, uh, uh, and I can certainly understand. I mean, of course, the, the Buddha doesn't talk about that so much. But <laughs> doesn't do but forest I mean, bathing. Modern, I mean, he doesn't talk about forest bathing, although they were forest living bathing, in a forest. Yeah. yeah, he just lived. I mean, of course, in his day, 
everything, well, I shouldn't say everything, but there were so many forests that it was hardly unusual. Um, there was a difference between the being in the, in the village and being in the forest, and that was a difference that the Buddha discussed, is that, uh, the, that within the village you're more the prey of our worldly winds of fame and praise and wealth and power, Whereas in the forest, you're sort of outside of that to an extent. Um, prey to wild animals. That behind. <laughs> you're prey to wild yeah. animals, yeah. yeah, which is a more immediate kind of, uh, of, of fear and concern. Um, but that aside, uh, you're, the stress is much lower outside the town. Yeah, for most, for, for most people, of course, these days, for most know, people, a lot of people stress out by being in the forest, you know, because they're so used to being in town. And it's, it's, they're not used to, like, natural sounds and... And if they can't identify a sound, they, they, their fear arises, which I think is part of practice. Yeah, um, frankly. yeah. No, I remember, I remember now that you say this, I remember having a neighbor back many, many, many years ago uh, who was from the city. And as I recall, the neighbor, the, I think the, uh, the, the neighbor's wife couldn't, couldn't, stand sort of the idea of animals outside or, 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 or insects, you know, that was something like, it was fearful to her. And so, she, you know, she would sort of spend as little time as she could in the country because of all the, you know, the little crawly things and flying things. Right. And, and you know, I mean, I guess if it's unusual to you, it's going to be stressful. Yeah, at first that anyway, that. you know, and then, yeah. and then, you know, if you, if you give it time, you realize, oh, these are just other beings that, they're not necessarily interested in me. They might be, but you know, that's okay. And um, and it really makes for interesting practice. So so a number of very specific practices, of course, within within the Buddha's teachings, are directly tied to nature. The the, the one that, the first one that comes to mind is is the the four elements practice. Um, you know, which is practicing around the, the basic elements that make up this body, but make up everything, which is earth, air, water, and fire or heat. When we realize that the elements that are in this body are no different than the elements that are in the tree outside, you know, there, there becomes an immediate connection. And that when this body dies, those elements just go back and you know turn into something else, which is out there. And so there's an immediate kind of, at least in my experience, there's an immediate softening of that boundary that separates me from nature. Um, it's interesting that you see that as a, as a nature practice. I mean, I, I can I can see that. On the other hand, of course, the, the elements are there whether we see them as chemical elements or these four elements, whether you're in the city or the town or in the countryside. Uh, you know, oh yeah, for sure. Are in, for sure. But then, <laughs> then, then even more so it's like, and, and when I've <clears throat> guided this practice in the city and, you know, I suggest that people look out at the bricks that are making up the building, you know, the earth element in those bricks is not that different from the earth element in this body, which is not, you know, but it's all coming from the earth in one mm -hmm. way or another, yep. you know. So if we consider nature to be the, the, the source, the source, the yeah. Source. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, you know, it connects us to everything, really. Mm -hmm. 
the other part of practice that I find really interesting to bring into nature, uh, and this comes from the uh, foundations of mindfulness, is we have an internal experience and an external. We're always experiencing things internally and externally. And uh, so when we see a tree, uh, you know, there's the external seeing and there's the internal experience of seeing the tree. But then there's this funny twist at the end of that instruction uh, where he says, and internally and externally, right? Yeah. So it's like, what, why, you know, a lot of people would say, well, that's just reinforcing the earlier, but it's actually something else in my, in my understanding and practice. Because when those two things come together, something shifts. So I was guiding this practice at this retreat, you know, and I suggested that people use the sense of touch and they maybe touch leaves, right? Or grasses. And, you know, so there's the external experience uh, of the, uh, the object touching my skin. There's an internal experience of what, what else may happen through that sense of touch. But then there's, where does the, where does the thing end and my finger begin, you know, can you really sense that? And also recognizing that while you are feeling the leaf, the leaf is also feeling you. <laughs> so there's this, there's this two way action going on that we don't really think about. And, and that can be quite transformative actually. Um, you know, as you walk through a forest or just sit in nature, and let go of this notion that you are anything other than nature, you know? And if you let go of that notion of being anything other than nature, then, you know, you're sitting in this field and you're just part of that field, as opposed to, you know, thinking that the field is different than you. Yeah. And I think that, What's interesting, and, and I think, I can't remember if we talked about this offline, but uh, I just, I've, I've started really admiring the work of David Abram, who's, I don't uh, know. he's an echo philosopher. Ah, okay. Um, and he's also, he, his first major book was called, um, f um, sorry, I'm looking at my books, trying to find The Spell of the Sensuous. The Spell ah, okay. of the Sensuous. It was written in the 90s, early 90s. And he makes a really interesting argument that the development of language, particularly alpha languages, that is languages based on alphabets, separated us in a way from nature. And if we think about that, we realize that oftentimes, you know, because we, we, we spend so much time naming things, we're not actually seeing the thing that we're seeing. We're seeing the name of that thing. And, you know, when we let language kind of fall away um, and just have the experience of whatever it is that's being seen, which of course brings us, you know, to the famous Bahia Sutta of in the scene, there is only the yeah, scene. Only the scene, yeah. Um, you know, everything else is an add-on. And how does that add on? How do those names and stories that come out of those names impact what we're actually seeing? And that in nature can be a really powerful practice.
Well, I mean, this is part of appreciating nature. This is the this uh, nature appreciation where we're not where we're sort of allowing the the sensual beauty of it to come through to us um, without any uh, conceptual overlay. If we can, I mean, to it's the extent hard. that we can, which is which is not really it's hard so easy. Yeah, I mean, on the other, I mean, the one of the things I I discussed in the video is is there's, I mean, I, one of the, I, I love these kinds of mini contradictions, paradoxes in Buddhism is this idea that, you know, part of our pitfalls, part of the pitfalls of, of, of human life, of life in general, is our tendency to get attached to sensual pleasures. And one of the great sensual pleasures is the pleasure of, of nature, um, uh, you know the pleasure, which is which is presented to us in so many later Buddhist kinds of artworks or mm. the Zen temples sure. that try to recreate yeah. nature in a small, yeah. small place, which is a, to me just about as beautiful as things can get. Uh, on the other hand, you know there was a lot of you know money and effort expended on these things, and people buy large tracts of natural land in, in order to have it for themselves. <laughs> because it's so beautiful. Um, so there's, you know, uh, there's positives and negatives to all these things. Um, do we get attached to this? Do we, do we pine after nature when we're not there? And, and does it stress us out more because we have to make enough money to be able to afford the, the trip out to Colorado or wherever uh, to, to be able to spend time in, in nature? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think there are two sides to that. One is obviously the attachment. Yeah. Right? And the thing about attachment or clinging, it's a, I think it's a better word. Uh, you know, it's like, I have to have this, otherwise I'll go crazy, you know, is, um, I mean, if I don't get, if I don't get into the forest next week, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to be really in trouble. Um, is recognizing, of course, the clinging and, and that it's not helpful. <laughs> and it's not about the forest at that point. It's about the clinging to the forest, right? Exactly, exactly. And I would say that being an urban dweller at the moment, you know, who loves being in nature, take advantage of what's here. And even if it's just the tree in the courtyard, you know, there's something important about that. Um, or the flowers in the courtyard, you know, so, so, um, it doesn't have to be, you know, in the wilds of Colorado or in upstate New York or wherever, though, that's great. You know, we go on retreats, you know, if we go to some retreat centers, like Insight Meditation Society, particularly the Forest Refuge are really away from everything. And, you know, the, the peace there and the quiet there is quite special. You know, but then there are retreat centers like the retreat that's, well, we will have done it already, but the retreat at, the retreat center at Garrison, which is beautiful and it's in nature, but it's like also just above the commuter rail line and across the river is the freight line and you're constantly hearing horn, you know, train horns. But that just becomes part of the overall experience. Right. And, um, you know, so finding ways you know, to connect with nature, even when you're not, even if you're living in a city is, is really important to our practice, I think. Yeah. And also getting away from this notion that there are only certain places that you can practice Buddhism. I mean, I think there's this kind right. of conceit and amongst, you know, not necessarily, I mean, I'm not going to 
generalize, but it certainly is sometimes seems as though some people are saying that, you know, in order to really practice Buddhism, you have to go to Thailand or you have to go to Burma or you have to go to the forest refuge. I mean, the northern Thai, Thai forest refuges or wherever. Um, but uh, certainly, I would I would suggest that even if you were to ask the Buddha that question, he would he, even he would say, no, that's not true. Right. You can do it anywhere. Right. It's just that, I mean, from his point of view, which I I could make sense to me anyway, is that it's just easier to practice in certain places than it is in others. It's easier to practice in a quieter location where you have fewer distractions than it is, you know, to practice in a noisy location where there are lots of distractions. Um, because the mind being what it is, if we're not enlightened already, which we aren't, uh, you know, we're going to be distracted by those distractions. And so there's a that's really the benefit, I think, as much as anything, to being in a place like the Forest Refuge or something. Well, let me just put a slight warning on that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, there is the downside, which is we don't want to get attached to it. Well, no, no, no. no that's, that's not where I was going. It's just the warning is uh -huh. when you go to a place that's so quiet, all of that, ah, yeah, all yeah. of that stuff <laughs> that's been floating around your mind will become extremely loud. Which you that's know, when true. you're when you're just in a city with other external distractions, it kind of mutes that a bit. And so you find yourself, at least for the first few days, like contending with all sorts of stuff. So just take yeah, that in yeah. as advisement. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and some people really can't deal with with quiet for that very reason, yeah. I think. Yeah, for sure. I remember going on a on a on a very short uh silent retreat uh with people from different traditions. Um some of them were Christian, some of them were Buddhist. And one of the people who was there, I believe she was Christian, uh, just couldn't deal with silence. Um, she, you know, and when we, when it was made clear to her that we had to be silent during the meals, <laughs> she really took that as an affront. Yeah. You know, that it, that it was, and I think, you know, she really wanted that chatter. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it's but, because chatter is, is a kind of fabric of our society at times. And it's, yeah. you know, when it's come up in retreats that I've led, why can't I talk at lunch, you know, or whatever? And it's, it's, what are you going to talk about? <laughs> you know, it's just going to be a distraction. Um, yeah. I mean, there's two, of course, some people will say it, it allows for people to make more connections with each other, with each other which is true. Uh, but I think we have to have place for both. You know, on the one hand, you do want the ability for people to talk to each other at some point so that they can make connections they take with yeah. themselves and at friendships, the <laughs> kalyana mittas, yeah. you know, yeah. spiritual friendships and all. But at the same time, you really, it, it's so important to have that silence just to be able to confront what isn't ordinarily confronted. There's that. And there is also a strong connection that gets made within the silence. Mm, that's true too. Very, yeah, very true. powerful. And, um, I mean, now we're getting into a slightly different topic around silence and stillness, but <clears throat> just, you know, uh, with our online Sangha, which for months was only meeting and meditating, and there was no conversation to speak of. And yet people became very close as a result. So it's, um, it's different. It's yeah. different. I should also say that, of course, it's not just, you know, Buddhist practice, where which is out in nature mm -hmm. as well. I mean, we were when we were in France last summer <clears throat> in the Pyrenees. We went to this absolutely amazing 
a Catholic monastery that was way up in the mountains. I mean, it was it was a lovely hike up there, and there was a road that they they used for supplies and things. And I, I it it was just kind of somehow it was it was I forget what century it was built in, but it was restored in the last century. And um, you know, I thought, and and you can go there for individual retreats. And I thought. I could do that. You know, it's like, it's such a magnificent setting. And so, you know, every tradition seems to find its settings. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, we have a friend of ours, actually a good friend of ours who goes, who's Christian, who goes on Christian retreats, silent retreats within that tradition and loves them. Yeah, um, sure. I mean, I think that they do have a chance of some kind, but you know, no, so Buddhist retreats. Talk. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, that bringing nature into your practice and, and, you know, just one simple way that I suggest it. And I think actually on my website, there's a, um, a guided seeing meditation, which kind of uses that line from the Bahia Sutta about in the seeing, there is only the seeing, right? So it's just, you know, you, let's say you go to a walk in the park just see like so don't don't label things just see you know what a particular shade of green and even green is a label but just you know we we need it to some degree to just but so we see that what we would label as green let let the label go and just see what the experience is like of that color and then the next color or the next bird or whatever it is you know and also recognizing in that process that especially with something like a bird that while you may be seeing the bird, the bird is also seeing you. (laughs) And so letting go of this subject object uh, duality and, and just be with the experience. um, Yeah. can be very, very powerful. And that's just an easy way to practice. And as you said earlier, you don't have to do that in nature. You can do it walking down an urban street too, but it's just different in nature because the environment, you know, creates something that allows us to practice that more deeply, I think. Yeah. And we're, I mean, within an urban environment, we're surrounded by people, which brings up language all the time. Right. And uh, whereas in nature, uh, at least t- to an extent, you're among beings that aren't necessarily speaking. Uh, I mean, I remember uh, just actually last week, in fact, a couple days ago, out walking in the early morning and there was a fawn that just stopped in the middle of the path. It was about maybe 10 feet from it, just stopped and with its big ears looking at me. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of that, there was an article in the paper today, which I haven't read, but I did read about an app yesterday about uh, cat translators. (laughs) <laughs> but but there was an article. How do you know? How do you know if they're translating properly? <laughs> so uh, there was an article today. I saw the headline, and it's about trying to translate animal speech. You know, because there is something there. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, if yeah. anybody who's had a cat or a dog will know that, sure. that you can understand them ninety percent of the time. You know exactly yeah. what they're saying. Yeah. Um, at least I think I do. I mean, <laughs> you know. Usually they want to play or they, they're hungry or, you know. Well, you know, like because that. of all the birds you have at your place when you're feeding them, you have to, like, start to listen to them in a different way. Yeah, yeah. Of course, they, there it's a little more difficult because, you know, you think of birds as being non-linguistic 
creatures, but they're they have quite a I language. Mean, they're not. They don't have a human language, of course, but but they're definitely talking to each oh, other in sure. some way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of communication going on that's really over our heads that they're, you know, that, and I'm sure that it's things like get away from me or this is mine or whatever. Um, you never know. That's, you never know. That, that's certainly is some of it because yeah. you can definitely see the behavior. <laughs> it's like when they land on the, on the bird seed, it's like, this is mine. You know, you're not, you're not getting this. This is my bird seed <laughs> until I leave and then it's yours. But, you know, <laughs> All there's right. a lot of greed within birds too. <laughs> well, on that note, um, one of our natural desires is coffee. And, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. if you'd like to buy us a coffee, you can do that through our website. And uh, it helps support us and keep this podcast going. So um, defray some of the costs. Yeah. And, and, to, and also yeah. tell us about some of your nature practice, you know, what you've yeah. discovered. And, and, you know, if you play with this a bit more, just let us know. It'd be great to yeah, hear. Yeah. You from can leave you. comments at our website. Yeah. Diginthedharma.com. Yeah. Okay, friends. Great to Until speak with next you, time, John. Doug. Great, and, to, uh, great to talk to everybody in the audience. Hope you've enjoyed it. See you next week. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, consider leaving a review on your local podcast directory. It would help us out a lot. You can check John out at johnaaron.net and Doug at Doug's Dharma on YouTube and his Patreon page linked in the notes. You've been listening to Diggin' the Dharma with Doug Smith and John Aaron. Mm-hmm.